So here we are in our series of studies through Colossians, and we are going to be looking at the verses that we read today, but focusing in pretty much from verse 23 on to the remainder of the chapter. And so just to kind of remind us of what we read and and what we previously looked at, uh, we, like the Colossians, who were once alienated from and enemies of God, have now been reconciled to him through the cross. Because of what Jesus did in the body of his flesh upon the cross, we are now and forever will be holy and blameless in his sight. So when God sees us, when God sees you, when God sees me, when God sees all of those who have trusted in Christ, he sees us as holy rather than sinful. He sees us as blameless rather than guilty. He sees us as righteous rather than wicked. And he sees us that way because that's how we are in Christ. And and this is something that we need to be reminded of constantly. We, We need to be reminded that positionally before God, we are as righteous as we could possibly be. And what I mean by positionally is the way God sees us. Now, we see each other differently. We look at one another and we can find fault with each other and we can see uh, aspects of unholiness and, and all of that is just a, a reality of, of still you know, living in a, a sinful, fallen world and still inhabiting uh, bodies of sin. But the important thing to know is that God sees us differently than we see ourselves or we see each other. And so we always have to keep in mind that, that positional thing, and that's really what Paul is declaring here, that this is now our position. We are no longer enemies estranged from God, but dear children in an up-close and personal relationship with him. This standing is ours and remains ours through faith in Christ. As we trust in Christ, as we believe in Christ, this is how we have this standing before God. And so Paul reminds his readers in the 23rd verse that true faith in Christ is continued faith in Christ. And so he says here, uh, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So, faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ, is faith that continues. We sometimes hear about people that seem to have moved away from their faith in Christ. Uh, Something's happening in our current cultural moment, um, something that is known as deconversion stories. And what that is about is that you, you have people 
a lot of times people who had some sort of prominence or some sort of recognition, some sort of celebrity status or something like that in the Christian community who uh, claim now to no longer believe what they previously believed. And so they, they want to tell people the, their deconversion story. You know, they're sort of like now evangelizing for uh, agnosticism or atheism. And it, it's really interesting. It's sort of a phenomena that is, uh, has been occurring more recently. But there's a good, good handful of people who um, either they were, um, you know, maybe, maybe uh, musicians within the Christian uh, music uh, community, or they, they might have been worship leaders, or they might have uh, been church leaders, or authors of books, or something like that. There's, there's at least uh, a half a dozen that I could think of that I don't need to mention them by name, but uh, you know, so they're 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 out there, and they're anxious to tell their story of how they no longer believe what they had believed. So this is called a deconversion story. So what about those who seem to have moved away? Uh, because what we're talking about here, and I think what the, what the overall message of Scripture is, is that if you're truly converted, you will remain in Christ. So how do you explain these so-called deconversion stories? Well, I think there's two possibilities. Number one, um, some of them are actually genuinely saved, but they've fallen into a season of deception and confusion, and they've wandered off, but they will return. And I think that's an important thing to recognize. Um, recently, uh, some, a somewhat uh, well-known uh, artist, Christian artist, came out as another one who has a deconversion story. And I remember him and his band, they played at an event that we did here uh, quite a few years ago, an outdoor event that we did over at the, um, the Karis building. Uh, this was the band that they wanted to have come. And, and so this guy was the leader of the band. Now he's pretty much renounced his faith and said, you know, he, he no longer believes what he used to believe. Uh, but just recently, uh, he was willing to have a conversation with um, Sean McDowell. Sean McDowell, some of you know that name. Some of you recognize the McDowell part of it. He's Josh McDowell's son. He's a professor at Biola University. He's an apologist, just like his father. And um, Sean and this particular person had a conversation that was moderated by my friend Justin Briley in uh, London. And, and so, you know, they're, they're having a conversation about this. And basically, Sean is, you know, challenging this person's deconversion story. And the thing that I'm, I'm getting at here and the thing that I appreciate with Sean is he did it in a very gentle and gracious way, but without pulling any punches when it comes to the facts and when it comes to just the, you know, the reality of, of, of what is true and what is not true. But I know Sean's method is with the objective of trying to, to bring the person back in. Sometimes the tendency is to just want to write people off like this. 
hey, they, they renounced their faith, so they're now the enemy. We need to just come out and we need to uh, take a hard position against them. And, and I agree, we need to take a hard position in regard to the issues, but when it comes to dealing with the person, we still need to be gracious. We still need to be loving. And we still need to recognize that they quite possibly could still be believers just going through a wilderness time of confusion and deceived to the point where they're thinking, I don't believe this any longer. But you never know. A few years from now, they might come back around and say, I was deluded. I, uh, I made a mistake. And so we need to pray for those kind of people. So that's one possibility with a deconversion story. The other possibility is that such people have never truly been saved, even though they had an outward appearance of being a Christian. Now, this sometimes is difficult for people. They think, what do you mean this person wasn't really a Christian? Don't you know they wrote this book or they, they wrote these songs or uh, you know, they, they did these evangelistic crusades or all different types of things they point to to say this person must have been a Christian who has now uh, apostatized or another way to, to say that is just that this is a, a person who was a Christian who has lost their salvation. But I don't believe the Bible teaches that a Christian can lose their salvation. So if a person appears to have been a Christian, but now seems to have lost their salvation, if they're not just wandering and will come back eventually, then I think what we have to conclude is that even though they had the outward appearance of a Christian, they were not actually a Christian. And I will give you one name to support uh, my, uh, <laughs> the idea that I'm presenting here that I think is uh, irrefutable proof that that can happen. And that one name, every one of us know, and that name is Judas. Judas. If anybody appeared to be a Christian, it was Judas. Judas appeared not simply to be a Christian. He appeared to be uh, a devout follower of Jesus Christ. He was counted among the 12 apostles. But Jesus said about him that he never believed. He never believed. Jesus made this amazing statement, speaking to all of the, the 12. He said, have I not chosen the 12 of you, and one of you is a devil? So you see, the whole time Judas was basically uh, pretending, and he fooled everybody except the Lord. And he perhaps even fooled himself. But remember when Jesus said tonight, uh, you know, there around the table at the, what we call the Last Supper, Jesus said, tonight one of you is going to betray me. And they all looked around the room and wondered who could it be. They even began to question themselves. Nobody looked at Judas and said, that's him. I know it's him. I could tell he's a fake apostle. No one knew that. So you see, it, it is possible. There are people, there have been people that have had an outward uh, you know, demonstration, so to speak, of having faith, but have not genuinely been um, truly a, a child of God. So we have to remember Jesus even 
taught us this, that the vine must remain in the branch. John chapter 15. So continuing to believe in and follow Christ, that is where our security comes from. As Jesus said, a branch that is cut off from the vine withers, dies, and is thrown into the fire. And so one cannot abandon Christ and expect to reap the benefits of his work on the cross. And so we could sum it up like this. Continuance is the test of the reality of one's faith. Continuance is the test. How do we know that we're saved? We continue to follow Jesus. We continue to trust him. We continue to believe in him. And that's what Paul says. All of these things are yours, and they are yours because you have not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So anyone who moves away from the hope of the gospel, as I said, is either temporarily wandering or they've never had a true and lasting hope in the gospel. And so Paul then goes on, and just really quickly, I want to just work our way through the passage, and then we're going to, we're going to land finally at uh, verse 27, and the Christ in you, the hope of glory. But let's just work through this. He says, concerning the gospel, he says, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of whom I, Paul, became a minister. What does it mean that the gospel was preached to every creature under heaven? It just simply means not that in Paul's day, every single human being had heard the gospel. Some people have mistakenly thought Paul was saying that and said, Paul was wrong. Everybody hadn't heard the gospel. Uh, That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that the message of the gospel is for everyone. It's a message that was preached in the sense that Christ came and brought this message to the whole world. This message is not limited to one group of people. It's not limited to one um, culture or one nationality or one race. It is a universal message. And now in verse 24, he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now, Now, this is interesting because if you remember, I think we pointed this out initially, that um, Paul had never actually met or, or, or been to Colossae. Remember, uh, Epaphras, who is Paul's associate, Epaphras is from Colossae. Epaphras is more than likely the one who started the church. And so Paul's base of operation was in Ephesus, and it was from Ephesus that... Um, All those, it says in Acts, all those in Asia heard the word of the gospel through the mouth of Paul as he was based there in Ephesus. So as we pointed out, Epaphras, this man from uh, Colossae, he undoubtedly heard the message from Paul in Ephesus. He was converted. He took it back to his community. He began to share the gospel. So Paul's never been there. But yet he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. So the the question that I asked as I read that is, how was it that Paul was suffering for the Colossians? And one thing I think just in a general sense we could say is that Paul's suffering uh, imprisonment uh, was because of the gospel. Paul continually put 
his own life at risk, which then would lead to suffering, in this case, imprisonment, uh, for the sake of the gospel, and the Colossians had benefited from that. So it was because Paul was willing to risk his life, and that landed him in prison, but yet it was that risk that allowed the gospel to go forth to the extent that the Colossians had received it. So it could be that's what Paul's talking about when he's referring to the suffering. But I like what uh, N.T. Wright suggested. He said, it seems as though he, Paul, is drawing the enemy fire. And this is what he means. As long as Paul stays in prison, those who are opposed to the gospel imagine they have gunned it down. In concentrating on Paul and giving him a bad time, they are not bothering about the young Christians who are growing up around them. I think that's a good, that's a good take on it. So the, the, those that were against the gospel, those that were constantly trying to undermine the gospel, now that Paul's in prison, they think, okay, we've accomplished our task. And they're satisfied with that. And so they're not bothering to try to harass or persecute the Colossians. And so it could be that that's what Paul is talking about. It's his imprisonment. It's the fact that uh, he's sort of drawn the fire away from them. And they're able to grow without that persecution that would inevitably come from the influence of these false teachers. But notice what Paul says beyond that. He says, I now rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, this 24th verse is one that has caused confusion for centuries. This is a statement that uh, many have, have really struggled to understand what in the world Paul is saying. What does it mean that he's filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? What does that mean? Is there anything lacking in the affliction of Christ? In other words, did Christ not suffer uh, sufficiently to attain our salvation? Did, did Paul have to somehow contribute to that? Well, even as I say it, that sounds ridiculous, right? It's because it is ridiculous, because that's not what it means. But believe it or not, there have been those who thought that that is what Paul meant. But it can't mean that there was something lacking in Christ's suffering to redeem us from sin, and that Paul now had to add his suffering to Christ uh, for redemption to be complete, that would contradict the very words of Jesus himself on the cross. What did Jesus say? His final words on the cross were, it is finished. And that, that word uh, could be translated, it is complete. Uh, it could be translated, the price has been paid in full. So in the sense of the redemptive aspect of, of the death of Christ, um, there's, there's nothing lacking in that regard that Paul is somehow adding to. So then, what is it that he's talking about? Well, what it means is this. Until God completes his task of putting all Christ's enemies under his feet, 
Christ continues to suffer. Christ continues to undergo affliction to this very moment. He suffers the rejection of the world. He suffers the daily mocking and blasphemy of his name. He suffers the persecution that his people experience for his name's sake. Remember when Paul was uh, persecuting the church while he was Saul of Tarsus, and he was on his way to Damascus to apprehend those uh, that were there, that he might bring them back uh, and imprison them in Jerusalem. And remember when he was on the road, and then suddenly this light shines around him, and it's the Lord. And remember what the Lord says. The Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? You see, as much as Paul was persecuting the believers, what was he doing? He was persecuting the body of Christ, and therefore he was persecuting Christ. So Christ, in that sense, was and still does to this day suffer affliction. So what Paul is saying is that his suffering is making up. He, in other words, he's saying that he is privileged to bear some of the brunt of the suffering that Christ is currently undergoing. So what is lacking in Christ's affliction just simply means the, the suffering that's still to come. Paul sees himself as being able to take a little bit of that on himself. And so it's true for any who suffer for Christ, that suffering is, is an extension of the suffering of Christ, and it's suffering uh, in a real sense for him. And so that's what Paul is referring to here. And he says that this is for the sake of his body, which is the church, and now verse 25, of which I became a minister. According to the stewardship, or the word could be translated, the administration from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So Paul became a minister of the gospel. He became a minister of the gospel, and there was a stewardship, an administration that was given to him. Another word that is sometimes substituted here is a dispensation. So it's, it's talking about a specific task that God gave to Paul. And that specific task that God gave to Paul was that he was to fulfill the word of God by revealing the mystery which had been hidden from ages and from generations, but now had been revealed to the saints. So Paul has this calling, and he recognizes that. And his calling, remember, Paul is a Jew. Paul is not just a Jew. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is a Pharisee. He is a person that you would look at and say, man, this guy is the, this guy's the ultimate weapon when it comes to bringing Jews to Christ. You would think that about him. But God calls Paul not to a primarily Jewish ministry, but he calls Paul to the Gentiles. And he said, Paul says, God's given me this administration to preach the word 
among the Gentiles and to make this mystery known. And, you know, that is just to bring it right, right home today. You know, this is what a pastor, a, a minister of the gospel, this is what we're called to do. We are called by God to take the truth of God and to make it known to the people of God today. That, that is our task. That is our job. And God help us to not lose sight of that. You know, there are certain times, and I think right now we're in a, a moment in history where there's, there's so many different things that are pulling on us, and, and especially on preachers, teachers of God's word, so many issues, so many things. You know, I, I could tell you right now that there are plenty of people out there that would uh, advise me, hey, you need to preach on this today. These are the issues. This is the topic. These are the current things. This is what you should be speaking about today. Well, you know, I do my best to shut all of that out. I want to speak on what I'm called to speak on, and that's God's truth. That's the gospel. That's God's word. And I want to hear from the Lord himself, Lord, what do you want to say to your people today? I don't want to take what, I don't want to take from the, from the news feed. I don't want to, you know, take it from the Twitter scroll. I want to, I want to receive from the Lord. Lord, what is the word that you have? And that's, that was Paul's conviction. Paul, his conviction was that he was called to preach and to teach and specifically regarding this mystery that had been hidden from ages and generations. So, so what is this mystery that Paul, it's given to Paul to, uh, to unfold this? Well, in writing to the Ephesians, remember we mentioned that Ephesians and Colossians are very, very similar. And some passages are uh, verbatim, just identical statements in in the two letters. Uh, but there's obviously clear uh, differences as well. But in some places, they're very much uh, the same. And in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says things there that are, that are almost identical to what he says here. In verse 26, let me just read it. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints... To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Listen to Ephesians 3, uh, 4 through 6. Paul says there, the mystery of Christ. So, so he's going to explain the mystery of Christ. This is what he's talking about. But let me just say this. You know, the mystery of Christ, there's, there's still people in the, the broader church world today um, who think of the mystery of Christ as something that is still a mystery, as something that you can't really totally even comprehend. Now, some of you know I grew up in Roman Catholicism. And in Roman Catholicism, there's still a heavy emphasis on the, on the mystery. Now, I mean, granted, there are still some mysterious things. We don't know everything about the Lord and, 
and his word and the gospel and the ways of the spirit and all that, there's, there's still mystery. There's still a place to say, I don't know that, or there's still a place to expect God to do things that we might not be thinking that he's going to do. That, that's all legit. But when you have this idea put forth that the gospel is a mystery that we can never really finally get, then that just leaves you in a place where you can never have the kind of confidence or security that the statements of the New Testament clearly indicate that we should have. And so, going back to my own experience in Roman Catholicism, I remember at times, you know, when I was on my quest, when I was trying to figure life out, and I somehow knew that God was real, and somehow I needed to make the connection, I remember talking to some of the the leadership in the church, the deacons and the priests, and I remember as I would ask questions and stuff, you know, they would just sort of say, well, you know, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Man, if it's a mystery to you guys, just think of what it is to me because I, you know, I don't really know anything. I'm here to get, I'm here to get some, some clarity. But they were still saying, well, it's a mystery. Well, like I said, there is some mystery, but there's no mystery around what the gospel is. The gospel is clear. The mystery part of it is, as Paul says, it was hidden from previous generations But the whole point is, now it's revealed to us. Now we know what it is. And so, here it is. He says, the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. He's referring back to the Old Testament period. As it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's it. This is the thing that now Paul is commissioned to bring to the world. That the Gentiles, the the people outside of Israel, the people that centuries and centuries ago, God allowed to go their own way. And because God allowed them to go their own way, many of the covenant people assumed that God was finished with them forever. That was the mistake that they made. And of course, Paul would have been one of those at a certain time in his life. While Paul was a self-righteous Pharisee, he certainly thought that there was the Gentiles, there there was nothing um, about them that God would have had any interest in. Uh, You know, some of the rabbinical literature uh, gives us some ideas of how Uh, they thought about the Gentiles. Uh, One quick example, simply, the Gentiles were created to stoke the flames of hell. That was the whole uh, purpose of the existence of Gentiles. But what the prophets had, had hinted at, the psalmist and the prophets is that, no, there, there was a glorious future for the Gentiles, but they couldn't figure it out. It was, it was blurry. And so Paul is saying that his ministry is to take this that was previously hidden from ages and generations and to make it known. That's what Paul was doing. I love what John Calvin actually said about this. 
Speaking of the riches of the glory of this mystery, he said, those riches have been manifest among the Gentiles for what is more wonderful than that the Gentiles who for so many ages had been sunk in death so as to seem utterly beyond hope are suddenly reckoned among the sons of God and receive the inheritance of salvation. Isn't that beautiful? And that's what, that's, that was the heart of Paul, where uh, his Jewish colleagues who had rejected the Messiah, they had disdain, ongoing disdain for the Gentiles. They had no room or place uh, in their hearts or in their view of the kingdom for the Gentiles. Paul says, no, the Gentiles are now, um, they're, they're brought in on equal footing. And, and what a wonderful thing that is when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, isn't it true that when you see somebody who uh, comes to Christ out of just a deep, dark uh, pit, when you see somebody that is saved and, and radically saved, if you will, because of uh, the places that they had been, and you know, or somebody that you even at times maybe yourself, you just couldn't imagine that this person could ever be saved. And when they get saved, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't, this is the greatest thing ever. It just causes a total uh, rejoicing, right? Well, that's how Paul felt about the Gentiles. The fact that the Gentiles were being saved was an absolute mind blower for Paul in the best sense of the word and something that filled his heart with absolute joy. So he says, like I said here, to the Ephesians, he, he uh, tells us what that mystery is. And now here to the Colossians, he says the same thing, but he puts it very succinctly. He says, to them God willed, to, to the saints God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery, verse 27, I'm in, among the Gentiles, here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's it. That's the mystery. The mystery is that Christ is in you. And again, this, this is revolutionary. This is revolutionary in Colossae. This is revolutionary in Ephesus. This is revolutionary in Hierapolis and Laodicea and all of those surrounding places where this gospel has come going out from uh, Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. This is, this is a revolution. And listen, it should be a revolution today as well. And let's pray that it becomes a revolution again, that this radical conversion. Now, think with me just for a second, if you can. I'm, I'm sure you could probably think of somebody. You know, just think of, uh, of a person, maybe a person you know, or think of, uh, you know, some of maybe what we see going on in the culture right now and all the craziness with that, and just think of some person that just seems so far out there, some person that seems so lost, some person, uh, or, or let's even say some group of people that we just think that, man, those, those people are, uh, you know, kind of like the Jews thought about the Gentiles. They're just, there's nothing for them with God. And let's remember that the mystery is that God can save them and 
Christ could actually dwell in them and be their hope of glory. You see, this is why we can never give up hope, because we have the gospel. And this is why we can't preach something other than the gospel. And that's why Paul goes on and he says, concerning Christ, who is the hope of glory, he says, him we preach. It's him we preach. This is the church's message. The church's message is Christ. The church's message is Jesus, the the person, the, the son of God, the savior, and all that has to do with him. But listen, I can tell you right now, there are many churches across the land that are preaching, but they're not preaching Christ. They're preaching something else. Oh, Christ is, you know, he's sort of little smatterings of Christ here and there and there and, you know, a scripture here and that there. But, but there's a different thing that's being preached. And that's not the mission of the church. You know, the famous um, Welshman Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached in London for many years, he was, he was always so annoyed by the church when the church would get off and and you know start preaching other things and this is what he said he said you know there are other entities within a society that can do that and and they should do that but none of them can do what the church can do and only the church can do what the church can do only the church can preach the gospel And so, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why for years and years I have had the conviction that, you know, I'm not going to get up in this pulpit and give you a rundown of the news this week. You can watch the news if you want to at home. That's fine. You can get plenty of that, right? Those news agencies, they're doing a great job. It's 24-7. They just tell you the same story over and over and over and over again for 24 straight hours. And by the end of it, you're out of your mind. You're totally crazy. You're upset. But you know, they're not telling you the gospel. They're not telling you about Jesus. They're not telling you about the, the hope of heaven. They're not telling you that. The church is supposed to tell you that. And but, but, you know, when the church gets confused and thinks that we're a news outlet and that we've got to just regurgitate what we heard on the news this week, that's, that's a tragedy. Paul says, him we preach. We preach Christ. And, of course, there are things in preaching Christ that are going to cause us to address things in the culture. I'm not saying that we don't do that, but... But I, I'm seeing right now, in particular, um, look, I, I know of a church that on Sunday, they, they did a reenactment of, um, you know, Independence Day, 1776, 4th of July, all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, if you want to put on an Independence Day play and reenact that, that's great. But I don't think you do that on Sunday morning. I think you reserve that for Christ. This is a place where... Christ is preached. Him we preach. And then he says, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. 
Paul says, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So him we preach, warning every man. Now the word warning here could also be uh, translated and is translated admonish in um, other translations. Um, the idea is to exhort uh, the word, the idea behind the word is, a, is a, um, to gently caution. But there, there is a place where we have to warn. We have to warn people that there are things that are going to try to pull us away, that there are things that are going to distract us potentially, that there, there is uh, this constant um, effort on the part of the enemy to eclipse Christ among his own people and get his own people off onto something else. So Paul says we, we warn and we teach in all wisdom. What is the objective? That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's our goal, to present every man perfect, every woman perfect. And again, perfect means mature, to make us whole in the faith. That's, that's our task. That is what we do. That is why we open the Bible. When we gather together, that is why we go through the Word of God, because we believe that God's Word is living and powerful. We believe that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. We believe that it does pierce to the, to the dividing of the, the soul and spirit that it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We believe that this word is transformative. And so we give ourselves to teaching it and, of course, to observing it. Now, I want to close by going back to Christ in you, the hope of glory. And let's just look at this for a moment. And I want to emphasize um, one word in the, the sentence, Christ in you, uh, each time. So first of all, Christ, that's the emphasis, Christ in you. Think about that. And remember, who are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the one through whom everything was made, visible and invisible, whether, you know, things in heaven or things on earth, all things were made by him. All things were made for him. And in him, all things are held together. And he is, remember, he is the, uh, he's the firstborn from the dead. He's, he's the head of the church. This is the one, Paul says, is in you. See, this is the miracle. The miracle is Christ in you. Christ is in you. And that's the second point. Christ is in you. He's not merely near you. He is not only with you, as wonderful as both of those things are, to have Christ near us, to have Christ with us. But this is... This is the ultimate. Christ is in you. Christ himself dwells in you. Christ lives 
in us, the people of God. He lives in the church uh, collectively. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the collective. But individually, we're also the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so thirdly, Christ in you, this is the personal encounter where the life of God enters into the soul of a person. Christ is in you. So Christ is in us. Christ is in you. And it's through the indwelling presence of Christ that we are being transformed from glory to glory. And in as much as we feed that spirit life, in as much as we put the emphasis and the focus upon that, then Christ who is in us will also emanate out from us. You know, this is a, a, um, a desire of mine, a personal desire. I, I, I know that it's coming someday, but you know, my personal desire is, gosh, I want to be more like Jesus. How does that happen? And I, I was thinking about, I was actually reading um, about Moses. And remember that part of the story where Moses, he goes and he goes 40 days and 40 nights up into the mountain to be with the Lord, to receive the commandments. And it says that Moses is there in the presence of the Lord. He neither eats bread nor drinks water. You know, you can't not drink for 40 days and live. That's impossible. But Moses lived. How did he live? He was in the presence of God. God's presence sustained him. And then remember what happened when Moses came down the mountain? He came down the mountain and he didn't even know it, but his face was shining with the glory of God. So much so that the children of Israel, they were, it was um, kind of blinding to them. They're like, man, we need, a, we need some sunglasses to be around Moses. And what did Moses do? He put, he put the veil over his face. But here's my point. That happened to Moses, who spent time with the Lord. What if we spend more time with the Lord, who dwells in us already? Wouldn't it stand to reason that that, that presence of Christ who is in us would begin to manifest himself uh, through us, through our speech, through our gestures, through our behavior, and maybe even through our countenance as well. Christ in you, the personal encounter, and Paul says then, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. The word hope in the New Testament doesn't mean hope like we think. We think about hope as uh, we long for something that we want to happen, but we're not certain that it will. But in the New Testament, hope has more of a certainty to it. So it's a confidence. Christ in you, the hope in the sense of the confidence or the certainty of glory. And what is glory referring to? Well, it's referring to Christ-likeness. The glory of the Lord, Christ-likeness 
uh, manifesting itself through us, ultimate transformation into his image. The Bible calls this glorification. We are saved, which is a uh, threefold thing. We are justified. That's our position, like we talked about in the beginning. We are being sanctified, and we will be glorified. How do we know we will be glorified? And let's just put it in another way. How do I know I'm going to make it to heaven? Because that's where glorification ultimately occurs. How do I know? Christ in you is the certainty of glory. It's because Christ is in you that you have that confidence that that is the future. That glorification is where God is ultimately leading. And so, Lord, thank you that we have that certainty, that we have that assurance because Christ is in us. And, Lord, we pray that as your people collectively and as members of your body individually, we pray, Lord, that the very presence of Christ who is in us would manifest himself among us and through us to the world that so desperately needs to see the Lord today. So help us, Lord, we pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing kindness and mercy and grace. And just like the Colossians and the Ephesians and all of those Gentiles in the province of Asia who were so sunk in sin that it didn't even seem possible that they could be saved. Lord, thank you that that is true of our lives as well. That when we were a lost cause in the minds of many, that we were not to you and that you saved us. And Lord, I just would pray as we close today, Lord, if there's anyone here today on the campus, if there's anyone watching online, Lord, if there's anyone who uh, could not say with confidence, Christ is in me, I pray that they would be able to say that as they would just call upon you and as they would put their trust in you. And Lord, that as they do that, that you would enter in in all of your fullness into their lives and be glorified through them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.